Romans 5 is one of my favourite parts of Romans. It's packed with so much depth and truth. But more than that, I love how it brings together the culmination of what has been happening in the first four chapters of Romans and what we've been talking about for the last few months. I choked to Bess yesterday and then maybe repeated the joke to Dad for good measure a little bit later um, that there is in fact five sermons that I could be preaching on the passage we have today and I'm only going to give you three of them, just joking, but there is so much to unpack and dwell in. So where are we? Well, Stephen did a great job of bringing us to the right point as we started the service today. But let me remind you again, Paul has mounted this great argument, firstly, that we're all alike under sin, that God will judge Jew and Gentile alike, that God's judgment for all of humanity, sin, is righteous and just, and that we are without hope on our own merits. He then goes on to explain how even those that we look up to in the Old Testament as being good and doing the things that please God were not justified by their actions, but rather by their faith. Their faith in what? Well, the end of chapter 4 tells us, Romans 4 verse 20 says, Yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promises of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God has power to do what he has promised. This is why it was credited to him as righteousness. The words, it was credited to him, were not written for him alone, but also for us, to whom God will credit righteousness. For us who believe in him, who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He, being Jesus, was delivered over to death for our sins and raised to life for our justification. And so when chapter 5 starts and we come to the therefore we have reached the culmination of this wonderful train of thought. We believe in God who raised Jesus from the dead and that we will be justified by the things that we, not by the things that we have done, but because of our belief and trust in him. The therefore in 5.1 is that beautiful connection that grounds where we're at and starts where we are today. We've heard about how hopeless and lost in sin we were. We've heard that faith and justification isn't because of what we've done, but is entirely because of God. And now, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. If over the last few weeks you've got the impression that all of humanity are God's enemies and that there is nothing that can be done, uh, there's nothing that can be done to, by us to bridge the gap between us and Him, you'd be completely right. That is, in fact, exactly Paul's point. It's only because of the death of Jesus for our sins that we can have peace with God. Peace, no longer subject to God's wrath and judgment for our wrongdoing. Isn't that amazing? We've looked so much about God's righteous judgment, about the punishment that we deserve, and to finally hear these words is a balm for our sorrows. It's peace, peace with God, peace with God. And how does it come about? Well, just as the angel said at Jesus' birth, through his birth, we have peace with God. It's through our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, this peace isn't just something that just happened. 
It's not a magic switch that God clicks and takes away the enmity that exists between himself and mankind. Rather, it is something that came at a significant cost. It came through his death, as we saw in chapter 4. But because of Jesus' death, we now have access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And there are so many good things about that. Just like Abraham, it is our faith that is the ingredient in our salvation. Not because of the things that we have done, not because of our actions, but our faith. Our faith is what lets us be part of God's grace. And I love the phrasing that's in this verse here. It's, um, it's like we've been given tickets to an Ed Sheeran concert. Um, imagine this. You line up at the stadium and instead of being taken to your seat at the very, very furthest corner away, looking down in the audience like so many photos I've seen on my Facebook feed um, over the last uh, couple of days, uh, you're, you're ushered straight through into the green room. And and Ed is standing right there. It's not dark. He's not standing in the dark. You're not listening to the favourite song. But that's beside the point. He's standing right there and you are just metres away from him. Surrounded by the musical genius and brilliance of his performance. And he turns to you and he says, Hi. Your heart stops for a moment. You think to yourself, what have I done to be here in the presence of such an amazing performer? A wonderful talent. Well, friends, this is exactly what Paul is talking about. Except we're not talking about a performer on stage. We're not talking about a musical prodigy who writes melodically beautiful and lyrically interesting songs in a context of largely overproduced formulaic music. We're talking about the God, the creator of the universe, letting us stand in his grace. Sorry, that doesn't quite do justice to what Paul is saying here. He isn't saying that God just lets us stand in his grace. He says that we stand in his grace. It's not just merely a permissive act. It's an active act. It's not that we can do it. It's that we are doing it. Because of what Jesus has done, we not only have access to God, we are there in his presence, in his grace. It's not just waiting for something. We are there right now. And so what do we do? Well, it's only natural that we rejoice. This is, of course, the only response. One of joy at the great news of what God has done for us. One of joy over the fact that we now stand in his grace. But at the same time, we know that Jesus' work isn't finished yet. We know that even though we stand in his grace and presence now, we're waiting for the day when the glory of God will be fully revealed. We will see his glory, well, we already see his glory in what he has done through Jesus on the cross. We see his glory as we are brought into the throne room and experience the salvation that we have. But we rejoice because we have hope in a future glory of God, a glory which we now see in part, but which we will share in full when he returns. And quite honestly, I could stop here, It's almost enough to simply stand and reflect on the glory of God that we see because of what he's done in his son Jesus, to understand that we should rejoice. And if you walked away from this passage today with that, you probably haven't done something too terrible. But I do think there is a danger if we stop here. 
There are so many in this world that would have us believe that to be a Christian is to simply enjoy every blessing, to have hope for a better, more fulfilled, more perfect world. And in that vein, as I was browsing through an article on Facebook yesterday, this lovely video popped up. There's a lot that I could say about it, but why don't we just watch it? Citizens of the world, in gratitude to God, who has given me wealth, family, health, love, strength, and many other things that have filled me with happiness my entire life. I have resolved to lead a mission to generate employment throughout the world. A mission to end disease, a mission to end spiritual poverty, and that hatred that brings war. Those citizens, let's all unite. Let's fight together and make the world a paradise. Glory to God. Long live the world. It's attractive, isn't it? A world with employment. A world where God is glorified. A world without disease. A world without spiritual poverty. A world that we fight for paradise. It sounds great. But Paul's next words provide us a different perspective. Not only so, but we rejoice in our sufferings. Many people talk about the Christian life as victorious. You can walk into a Christian bookstore and find shelves lined with books that teach you how to live a victorious, redeemed life how to succeed and how to flourish and claim all of the good things that God has given you. But this isn't the joy that Paul is talking about here. He talks about rejoicing in our sufferings. I mean, that seems counterintuitive, doesn't it? Suffering isn't something that we rejoice over. Suffering is painful. Suffering is hard. Suffering is something to be avoided. Suffering is bad. Suffering is anything but victorious, isn't it? But Paul lays out here a Christian perspective on suffering that is, in fact, something quite different. It's something so different that it should lead us to rejoice, to rejoice in our suffering, just as we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. They're equal things. But how can this be? Well, Paul actually does explain it for us, and it's a pretty simple, simple formula. Here's what he lays out. Because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, and character, hope. Enduring through suffering produces perseverance, and perseverance in turn produces character that reflects God and changes us, and that character gives us hope. Suffering is a necessary precursor towards these things. Because without it, we don't have the ingredients to transform. Now, I, I really hate this analogy, but it is really apt for this situation. You can't take a lump of coal and turn it into a diamond without pressure. The same thing is true of the Christian life. Christians don't get hope without suffering. Because suffering is the necessary catalyst that builds all of the things along. Christians rejoice in suffering, not out of a masochistic desire to be beaten up, but rather out of an understanding of what suffering leads to. Hope. But not a hope that is transient or ephemeral. Hope that is fueled by the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to every believer. 
It is the Holy Spirit that lets us know and experience God's love for us. A love that is so powerful, so significant, that it culminated in the death of his son on the cross. You see, it's very easy to assume that the Christian hope is something that's just a nice idea or a wishing for the best. It's easy to hope like we hope for a raise or that our kids might do well in school or that we might get good marks on an exam. We can hope like we have a good day or we can see, hope that we can see an improvement in some bad situation. But, but this isn't the kind of hope that Paul is writing about here. And why do I say this? Well, interestingly, the hope that Paul is talking about isn't in the future tense. Look at what it says there. It's that this hope has been poured out for us. God's love has already been shown to us in our hearts. But how is God's love shown to us? Well, at just the right time, when we were still powerless and stuck in our sin, condemned by each and every action that we have done, Christ died for us. Those who were ungodly, those who needed God's help, it wasn't because we were good people. It wasn't because we've deserved it. Paul has just spent the last four chapters setting us up to know this. But Christ died in our place, taking God's punishment for our sin. If we jump ahead to verse 10, Paul reminds us that we were God's enemies. And yet, even as his enemies, his own son died for us. <laughs> I could keep saying this over and over again. And I think we need to dwell on it as much as we can and as often as we can. But it's true that the love of God for us is so great that it means that even the death of his son is not too small a price to pay. His love is so great that even those who reject God, who are utterly without hope aside from him, who do not seek God, who have turned away, even those people he will die for. He will die so that they will be justified. He will die so that they will have life. And he has done it. And you see, this is the heart of the Christian gospel. Our hope isn't in some set of commands we need to follow. God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still sinners. At just the right time, while we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. We were God's enemies. But even while we did not seek him, even while we were given over to sin, even while our hearts were hard and turned away, we were reconciled to him. But it's not just justification and reconciliation to God. It's not just a matter of being declared right in his sight and no longer being an enemy of God. We're saved. We're saved from judgment and from death. Jesus rose from the dead, and because of this, we are given hope that we will also be raised from the dead. That's why so many of the early Christian accounts go to great lengths to help us understand the certainty of Jesus' resurrection. That's why there are eyewitness reports in the Gospels, because Jesus' resurrection from the dead is absolutely part of how God shows us that we have hope, not just for now, but for the future. It's the hope of resurrection that Paul is talking about in verse 10 when he says, For if when we were God's enemies we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? 
do you feel Paul's enthusiasm as he writes these words? I can't feel like he's helping to try to burst out of the pages of our Bibles in front of us. If God did the hard thing when we were his enemies, how much more will he do the easy thing now that we are his friends, now that we are reconciled to him? If when we were his enemies, Jesus died for our sin, now that we are no longer his enemies, now that we have been reconciled, how could he not save us? And so we rejoice because our reconciliation paves the way for our certain hope. We rejoice because Jesus has reconciled us with God. We rejoice because we have confidence and certainty for our future. We rejoice because we know what the future will hold. We rejoice and celebrate because we have eternal life. We rejoice and be glad because just like the lost son who returned in the parable of the prodigal son, we have returned. We were dead and are now alive. We were lost and now are found. And I want to suggest to you that there are two ways we can respond to this idea of rejoicing. And they depend on whether you have put your faith in Jesus for your justification or not. Firstly, if you do trust in Jesus, how are you going with rejoicing? Where is your joy? I've had a pretty frustrating couple of weeks. Things haven't been smooth sailing at work. The kids have been sick. I've been frustrated by friendships and circumstances in life. I've been sick myself, and even today, I'm feeling under the weather and, quite frankly, worn out. I've had times when I felt under pressure for my Christian beliefs and when I've been plagued with a heavy heart. I've had times when I've faced difficult decisions and felt nothing but a weight as I approached them. And as I came to this passage and prepared for today, I was confronted by what Paul said. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. We rejoice in our sufferings. We rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. He says it three times. In all of these things, we rejoice. Isn't it interesting that Paul doesn't talk about this as something that is in the future tense? He doesn't talk about it as though we will rejoice in these things when we see the fulfillment in the future. He doesn't sit here and say, one day you will look back on the events of your life and find joy in all of this coming together. No, he says, we rejoice. It's active, it's present tense, now, right now. He doesn't talk about it as though we have rejoiced. He doesn't, it's not a past tense reflection on the glorious moment when we first became aware of God's sovereign saving grace in our lives, when we first understood the sweet knowledge that our sins were forgiven, not by our own merit, but by the blood of Jesus who died on the cross for our reconciliation, not because we've seen his unfolding work of salvation in the lives of others so that we have rejoiced. He says... We rejoice now, right now. You see, as I reflected on this passage, I became aware that in the busyness of life and in the pressures that face me day in and day out, that my joy had become squashed. Instead of rejoicing now in the midst of suffering, instead of rejoicing because I have reconciliation, I've become complacent. Yesterday afternoon, the boys and I went on a bushwalk. We started out at home, and we went down to the lakes and then made our way under the road tunnel and then across the valley and then eventually came out the other side. To be honest, we didn't know where we were going as much as I told the boys that I knew exactly where we were and where we were going the entire time. And when we found a signpost that showed us the way to go, the boys and I were actually overjoyed. Tells you a little bit. Timmy jumped up in excitement as he read the sign telling us that the way we could go. Joshy was delighted as he could see the arrows pointing in the directions that we needed to go. 
I was thrilled we were no longer relying on my slightly average orienteering skills and sense of direction. Um, those of you that know past stories of me bushwalking will completely understand why. And as the walk progressed on, we found more and more signs. And instead of having the same level of initial joy that we had, we were instead filled with a confidence that as we were walking along the path, we were heading in the right direction. And when we came to a fork and we had to choose between going left and right, and we chose right, and then 50 meters down the path, we found yet another signpost pointing that we were, in fact, once again on the right path, we were overjoyed once more. The Christian joy is something similar. At different stages of our life, we will be filled with an inexpressible joy that comes from understanding the riches of God's redemption more fully. We will bask in the fullness of understanding God's love, which is poured out on us and reinforced by the Holy Spirit, which lives within us. At other times, we will be reminded with sureness that our salvation is done, not by our work, but by the blood of Jesus, and be reminded to be filled with joy. But it can be easy to fill life with things that mask these marker points, that we can, miss the sign, uh, we can become so busy that we miss the signposts along the way that refresh us and remind us of the great things that God has done. We can forget about the certain hope that we have, the hope of salvation and deliverance on that last day. And so we need to keep coming back to the Bible. We need to read and feed on God's word and let our lives be enriched and changed by it. We, not to, we need to not give up the habit of meeting with other Christians who can encourage and build us up so that we can follow Jesus and share in his joy. We need to remind each other of the hope that we have and that Jesus is coming back soon and that we already have a taste of that first fruit of being redeemed, but that God's work isn't done yet. We need to be active participants in the gospel and remember that now we stand in God's grace because of what Jesus has done. And it's not that hard. Merely stopping and reflecting on these things over the last week has reshaped my joy. It's helped me rejoice in the midst of the trials of life. It has helped me sit with confidence in my salvation and to shout with praise to God for what he has done in Jesus, admittedly with not a lot of voice a lot of time. But secondly, if you don't trust in Jesus, then this idea of Christian joy is something that probably remains distant. Sure, the momentary happiness of life will come and go. There are things that is in this world that will bring pleasure, momentary contentment, and peace. But we know that these things are fleeting. They do come and go. They fade. You know, things like the birth of a child, the celebration of a new job, the beginning of a new relationship, the celebration of a marked personal achievement, the contentment of a good friendship, these things are all good, but ultimately fleeting. Times change. Friendships move. Children grow up. Jobs end. Relationships fall on hard times. The Christian joy comes from the certainty of what Jesus has done. It doesn't depend on us. It doesn't depend on our attitudes, actions, or behaviors. It doesn't depend on our achievement of certain personal markers or betterment of ourselves. It depends on Jesus who has already died for our sin. It depends on Jesus who has reconciled us to God by his death. 
It depends on Jesus who has given us life and certainty of life because he rose from the dead. And this is what Paul has been building for to the last, for, building to for the last four chapters. The answer to sin and death, to the hopelessness of human, the human condition, the human race, is Jesus. Jesus who died for our sins to justify us before God, to reconcile us to God, to give us life and hope, and hope that is certain because it depends on things that are already done. But the hope isn't just for nothing. The hope is for eternity. It's hope that despite our helpless condition before God, we are declared justified before him. It's hope that despite our sin and our inability to do anything for ourselves, we are saved. It's hope that we will be remade in Jesus' likeness, no longer marred by the sin that has shadowed our life to this point. And that might seem like it's hard and difficult. It can seem like making that jump is an impossible gap to cross, that this hope is something that is still distant and far away. But that's exactly why Paul told us about Abraham in chapter 4. Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. It wasn't because he faithfully kept God's commands. He certainly didn't do that. It wasn't because he lived a life that was good enough for God. It was simply that he had faith that God would do what he said. Perhaps you've never considered that this is something that you would like to have or should have. Perhaps you've never considered whether you actually can trust God to keep the promises that he has made. Perhaps you've never confronted whether you have a particular need to put your faith in Jesus. Perhaps today is the first time that you've heard about the joy that is found in the Christian life. And you're sitting there thinking to yourself, I want that. I want to know and to feel that joy. Well, friends, it's easy because God has already done the hardest thing when Jesus died on the cross. All you need to do is put your faith in what he has done. It's not hard. It's not some mysterious ceremony or magical ritual. It doesn't require a long journey or making large donations to a particular cause. It's as simple as asking and trusting. And when you do, God gives you his spirit in your life. It transforms and it changes you. And he gives you joy. He helps you deal with the sin that's in your life. He gets you ready for the day when Jesus returns. It's not all smooth sailing. And it certainly isn't easy. But it's the work that he does. I'm going to pray in a minute. I'm going to thank God for what he has done for us in Jesus. I'm going to thank him that because of Jesus' death, we are justified before him. I'm going to thank him for the hope that we have because Jesus was raised to life. I'm going to thank him for his spirit, which lives and works and acts in every believer. And I'm going to ask him to give us all faith and that if it is something we struggle to have, that he will help us experience his love and have the confidence that he has saved us. And I'm going to ask him to help us rejoice with joy that can only come from him. Let's pray. Our great God, it's hard to understand when we are so marred with sin, when our hearts and our minds are so helpless before you, 
When we look at your word and when we look at this world and we realize that there is really nothing that we can do to ever be good enough for the perfect person that you are, that we can never truly please you in every and all aspects of our lives. But Lord God, we thank you that you loved us so much that even while our hearts were far from you, even while we turned our back on you, you sent your son to earth to die for us. We thank you that his death pays the punishment that we deserve. We thank you that because of his death, we are justified before you. We thank you that because of his death, there is no longer enmity between us and you and that we are reconciled to you. Thank you that you raised him to life. Thank you that death was not strong enough to contain him, but he came back from the dead. And in coming back from the dead, proves that we will also be raised just like him in the future. Thank you that we can have hope in that day. Thank you that we can look forward to that day when we, like Jesus, will be raised. And thank you for your spirit, which you have given us to confirm and affirm the love that you have shown to us. Thank you that your spirit lives in our hearts, that it transforms our thoughts and our attitudes so that we can be more like you. Thank you that it produces fruit in our lives, fruit of love, joy, peace, patience, gentleness, kindness, and self-control. Thank you that it works and acts in us. Please give us faith. Please help us to trust you for all that you have done. Please help us to commit our lives to you and to believe the promises that you have made that we are justified, that we are reconciled, and that we are saved for all of eternity. Please help us to experience anew the joy that comes from trusting in Jesus. Please help us to rejoice in our sufferings. Please help us to rejoice because of the salvation that we have. Please help us to rejoice because of the greatness of your name and the glory which you have. Please help us to live our lives for you. These things we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.